Hello and welcome to another episode of the Space Update. This week we're going to be talking about EcoFuels, SpaceX, and we're going to be taking a look at the 20th anniversary of the International Space Station. Joining me today is... Hi, I'm Mitko. And I'm Ryan from the Space Update. Let's get started. Okay, a quick fire round of news. Uh, Rocket Lab launched on the 28th last week, uh, one step closer to that booster recovery on the 17th launch. Uh, SpaceX SN8 hopefully doing another static fire soon and heading towards that big 15k hop. Um, NREL 101 launching very soon on the Atlas V later this week. Still pad repairs going on with Delta IV Heavy problems with the pad. Hopefully that one will get off the ground sometime this year, maybe next year, who knows. And we've got uh, the 20th anniversary of the International Space Station astronauts on board since the 31st of October in the year 2000. So today I'm going to take a look at uh, EcoFuels and I'm going to look at NASA first because uh, they've recently in the past year or so uh, got a non-toxic rose-colored liquid fuel that they've uh, developed um, for their second stages. A peak of this propellant uh, that they've produced, um, it's actually denser and, than hydrazine that we're currently using on the likes of the Dragon module uh, that we've just recently seen for the crew missions. Um, it offers nearly 50% better performance. It's equivalent to getting 50% more miles per gallon in your car. This means the uh, spacecraft can actually travel farther and operate for longer with less propellant on board. It also promises fewer handling restrictions as well because there's a lot of dangers involved with hydrazine. As you've probably seen when the SpaceX Dragon module actually landed, um, there's lots of uh, panic and worry when we've seen all those boats floating around the uh, DM2 mission when it finally landed. All the gases coming from that hydrazine are actually toxic. If you even breathe in a tiny bit of that, it's just, you'll be stone cold dead straight away. Absolutely toxic gas to hydrazine. So this new green fuel, it's a lot, hell of a lot safer and it means they can handle the crew modules a lot safer than uh, currently possible. Yeah, I, I would think that if we go having multiple launches per week for some crewed vehicles, it's quite important to have a green fuel that doesn't kill you. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it's a lot easier to handle so they can actually, while it's still in the production facility, when it's pretty much done, they can just fuel it up there and then, not in a, like a secure location or anything like that, away so in a little clean room and stuff, as they probably do, or at the last minute when it's attached to the rocket kind of thing. It's a hell of a lot safer as well. Yeah, I think these days they fuel the capsules maybe at least two weeks before the mission, so it also could lessen the time needed. The only headache with NASA inventing this new green fuel is they had to absolutely redesign everything from top to bottom. The engineers first had to develop new hardware, everything from the thrusters, the tanks, the filters, the valves. It uses a set of thrusters that fire in different scenarios to test engine performance and reliability and stuff like that. Um, one of the tests done last year. Aerojet rocket dyne designed and built that extensively alongside NASA to achieve that, that goal, really. Uh, it's quite interesting they're involved with that, but it's one of those companies that have, have a long-standing relationship with NASA, a bit like uh, Northrop Grumman. Doesn't Aerojet rocket dyne uh, make the engines for SLS and the shuttle's engines well? Yeah, yeah, they produce the, the engines for those um Stupidly expensive engines, I think, but uh, incredibly reliable. So they're worth every dollar that they're made from at the end of the day, despite the high cost of maintaining them at the end of the day. 
Yeah, it's not cheap to have those running. I think it was 100 to 150 million per engine. Uh, was this green fuel uh, the one tested uh, last year with the Falcon Heavy STP-2 mission? Yeah, it was this, this green fuel. The, um, it was launched, tested last year on a Falcon Heavy. It's one of the missions NASA done. It's this green fuel that they've tested um, in a system. Not much information surrounding it, what exactly it was and what the results of it were as such yet. Because obviously it's an experimental thing. And I imagine it's maybe even being tested on the X-37B again. Because I imagine that's been a test bed for a lot of things that NASA are doing in terms of um, fuel and advanced propulsion and everything yeah you could be right i think they are a bit more air force type but maybe yeah but i, I was quite interested to learn about this green fuel even last year when it launched it's quite interesting because it's one of those things that like, we should have done it years ago really but they finally got around to it right now really fantastic do you know is it similar fuel so it uh, ignites on contact with the other fuel been a lot of information released about green fuel itself but in terms of the propulsion actually works i haven't come across any information as of yet it's just mentioned that the rose color and stuff like that and it's 50 percent improvement essentially but to what extent i don't know because it doesn't say 50 percent of what exactly i don't know a little closer to home for myself over in the UK, Gyrora in Scotland is creating their own eco-fuel from plastics that can't usually be recycled. This fuel is called Ecosane, one they're actually producing themselves. And Skyrora are able to produce around 600 kilograms of the fuel from 1,000 kilograms of waste polymers um, within the space of 24 hours, which seems quite fast to uh, break down that plastic and create the fuel. Most waste plastics can be used to produce ecosane. Um, however, with the highest yield, it comes from uh, polystyrene, believe it or not. And um, that's actually not actually widely recycled in the UK. So that'd be a great benefit to create fuel from the likes of polystyrene. It's a bit, a bit of an odd one, really, but uh, it's one of those things that you wouldn't think is possible, but it actually is to create fuel from that. Um, Ecosine is a comparable substitute for the likes of RP1, offering a similar performance and a cleaner burning fuel reduction of around 40 to 45% in emissions. And likewise, with uh, another Scottish company, Orbex. They're planning on using a biopropane type of fuel and from what they've disclosed so far, their fuel is supposedly up to 60 to 70% less emissions than the likes of RP1, so even cleaner burning fuel, but there's little information around on that one at the moment. Um, what do you make of that, Miko? Well, that's quite interesting to see those companies going greener. Kind of reminds me here in Finland, there's quite a few companies that are making gasoline for cars and some of them do them from waste. And then there's biodiesel that should take 90% of emissions out. Yeah, I mean, we've done it with the uh, combustion engine in various forms, uh, diesel, petrol, part electric, part fuel and stuff like that. It's only like natural that we actually try and do it with rockets, really. And also that this eco-scene fuel that Skyrora are producing, it's going to be fueling their XL rocket, which is actually bigger than uh, Electron, that rocket. Well, it has a good size then. They could become the next small sat launcher. 
Yeah, yeah, and I actually spoke with um, Skyrora myself uh, not too long ago, Robin, the uh, launch manager over there, and uh, some of the other guys. And I put it to him that um, what's the comparable difference between RP1 is a reduction or like a trade-off, if you like, for using an eco type of fuel. Because you, you sometimes imagine eco fuels, it's going to be slower, it's going to be less explosive, slower burn, and it might get a reduction in power, but yeah. He actually don't from what he's disclosed he didn't give me any facts and figures but he said it's that comparable if the difference is virtually nothing yeah that sounds great and for biopropane i think propane is actually much cleaner to burn than kerosene or rp1 definitely i mean you can you can tell from the, the figures i mean skyrora's eco scene which a 40% reduction in emissions and Orbex's biopropane fuel. I might imagine both of those fuels will be mixed with uh, LOX, but uh, the Orbex one will around about 70 to maybe 80% reduction. So like you say, yeah, a lot cleaner bit burning fuel, but 40% reduction or 70 to 80% is a hell of a lot better than RP1. And if it offers the same power and there's no loss, for that trade-off of uh, eco-fuel. I don't see why uh, the likes of uh, some of the big US companies don't look into doing that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. If you think about the scale of the rockets, uh, biofuels could, they could take too much time to make. But if we go and look at the Starship, they are actually trying to make their own fuel. A lot of it, like Elon Musk theory, methane fuel and everything, you can harvest it off planets, this, that and the other, but None of that infrastructure is in place. You can land on the moon, but the giant factory that makes the fuel isn't there, and it's not floating around the planet or anywhere else. So it's whether you do eco-fuel or a methylox, um, methane and liquid oxygen, either way, you still have to have that massive factory producing the fuel, whatever you use at the end of the day. Yeah, it's going to take them some time. But Elon has already talked about uh, having a wind energy farm somewhere close to Boca Chica. There's been a few, one paper I read recently about based around what Elon Musk's theorizing to do. It's actually a lot harder to produce fuel the way he's planning to do it from the, the air and everything else. Whereas if you harvest it in more natural ways, it's about five to ten times quicker and easier. So I'm still skeptical of his theory on how to do that really. It's good to test those things out here on Earth. may not be really viable here. Of course, on Mars and Moon, it's gonna happen. What we really need to do is just go to Titan and just scoop some up out of their uh, methane lakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be simple. <laughs> it's already in cryo temperatures. Scoop it up, filter it, there you go. Dip the rocket into the lake. <laughs> there's, there's also some other little uh, projects going on. I'm at Arca Space um, over in... Romania, that's the place, yeah. They're producing um, an aerospike engine, I believe like a pressurized water engine of sorts. Still skeptical of that one at the moment. Yeah, me too. Their, uh, the specific impulse seems quite slow. I think when they had a, a bit of tweeting with Scott Manley, I think it was under 100, so around 80 seconds the ISP. And in some, I have a YouTube on some uh, documents he released that it's going to be a, a final rocket by Arkham Space. It's going to be a three to four stage rocket. And the first stage using that aerospike engine is only going to go to around ten to 15,000 feet. And then 
the second stage will deploy, which seems incredibly low for a large engine. I, I mean, I don't know if you've, anyone's seen the actual tests. Just quickly Google Arca Space on, on there and watch some of the tests. It's not a small engine, and to drop it at 10,000 feet, it'll just be obliterated if it's not on a parachute of some sort. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, and I hope they succeed with it. But I think the idea was that the first stage is reusable and it has uh, batteries that heat the water up to hundreds of Celsius, so it the steam will push the rocket upward. But so it's going to boost the rocket only up to a, a relatively, well, incredibly low height com- in comparison to some of the rockets there and just dump that first stage at not even halfway to the Kármán line, if you like, the edge of space. So it seems a little bit of an odd theory to put so much effort into just getting barely halfway and then just firing up another stage. What was the height? Was it even lower than the air launchers like uh, Virgin Air and... It would probably comparable to that, to be honest. It's just so, it just seemed so underpowered that it couldn't even get the, the first stage, couldn't even get halfway to space kind of thing. Just kind of more, it just doesn't make sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, good luck to them and hopefully they make it happen. I mean, it's promising. It's just one of those things that when you look at all the other insane and crazy things that a lot of companies do, and a lot of the big companies and some of the like, smaller companies here in the UK and across the world, and when you look at that project, it just seems it could be possible in the future, but right now it's a bit, I think it's a little bit off the mark. Right, so we finally had some answers to the SpaceX engine problems. So NASA had press conference where they told uh, what the engine problems were. Uh, there was some red lacquer in a 1.5 millimeter hole. So that made the engine start actually a bit early. But it seems like SpaceX is now moving fast ahead and they actually static fire the GPS-3 mission. I think we could be on schedule for Crew-1 launch in about two weeks. But the Sentinel mission that was supposed to launch before Crew-1, they actually moved that further the line to the end of the month. I believe the uh, the date for the next uh, crew, well, the crew one launch is uh, the fifteenth of November, I believe. Is it or the fourteenth? I think it was the fourteenth. Yeah, yeah, and it's incredible to think that just some little red lacquer in a tiny, minute hole, just even though it's blocking, it actually made the engine fire up quicker, not slower. Bit of an oddball that one. Yeah, definitely. I heard it was uh, not release SpaceX workers that made a mistake, but it was some other company that they used it to mark the engines while they anonized the engines. Yeah, and then they, they usually uh, blast it off during cleaning before, at like the end of production usually, but for some reason somewhere it got missed and it just a little speck of it got left, left in uh, that minute hole. Yeah, and it's lucky for SpaceX that they didn't lose any payloads because if that problem were to have been on an upper stage... That could have been bad. I think the engine is that reliable and durable. I think it would have just eventually broke away, I think. But that's my theory anyway. But, um, from what I've read, it's, it wasn't like the end of the engine. It was like up inside the top chamber of the engine. So they had to literally take the engine off, take it all apart, clean out this tiny speck of red lacquer, then put all the engine back together and reattach it back to one of the well, 
eventually reattach it back to one of the boosters if uh, the engine's still uh, usable. That was the fix and they actually got it working with some of the engines. So it's essentially like getting a, a fleck of dust out of your car engine, taking it all apart, get this little fleck out and then put it all back together. An absolute nightmare by the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think it was Hans Koenigsmann who were in the press conference and he was saying that it shouldn't have been a problem usually, but there could have been a couple of like hard starts for the engines that could have destroyed the engine. I mean, it's not the end of the world. If they did lose one of the engines, the rocket's capable of losing an engine or two or three, possibly. But it's not ideal if they're uh, carrying crew on board, which needs to be 100% safe at the end of the day. Yeah, and if that engine would be the second stage engine, be the single engine. Definitely, definitely. Luckily, it wasn't the second stage. <laughs> yeah, and they also talked about the Starlink missions that they had last month and all those flight problem boosters didn't have the problem. So they were free to fly those missions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've had a, a little bit of uh, update from Elon via Twitter uh, the other night, in a way as he usually does. Um, but given his thoughts on Starship and everything, SN8 is almost ready to go barring that uh, static fire of the three raptor engines because one got switched over so naturally you have to test the trio of, trio of uh, engines just to make sure they're all working in harmony and then i believe they're also going to do a static fire of the cold thrusters at the top with that um, top header tank yeah i would think so too so yeah they need to test the engine and header tanks so when they actually fly it they can use fuel from the both of the tanks and elon's theory is um that the sn8 when it takes off it'll either air which rapidly fall apart front and launch elon thinks or it will create the actual landing pad <laughs> yeah so i kind of think that it will at some point late in the flight lose control and crash into the ocean what's your idea on that uh, i don't know because um to do the flip maneuver then the rocket has to naturally fall the right way because obviously the flaps can only rotate 90 degrees so if the, somehow the rocket flips backwards and ends up if belly side up if you like it's going to have more effort trying to do a roll and then tilt itself, pointing back up kind of thing. So something could go wrong with it because they haven't tested the control systems actually in flight, falling, like free falling, if you like. So and the on the final Starship, it'll actually have hot thrusters, like powered from the methane engines and everything, which are a hell of a lot more powerful. But the SN8 only has the cold thrusters, so it's not powerful enough. These thrusters are on the nose to push the nose up and down essentially like as an extra control system the, con the core thrusters aren't actually powerful enough to uh, fully control it so they haven't uh, to once it's belly side up if you like if it is belly side up i'm hoping it will be and nothing goes pear shape there they would have to tilt all three engines gimbal them pointing towards the sky and fire them up so the starship's essentially going to try fly sideways slightly but at the same time, because the engines and gimbal towards the sky, it should kick the bottom end of the rocket down and they'll bring the rear flaps in to make the bottom end drop but keep the top flaps fully 
out to create a bit of drag at the top. And in theory, the nose should lift up to the sky, and then we'll do that crazy sw swing swing arm action of landing of some sort. But this it's just when I even think about it, it just hurts my head. <laughs> I mean, how could, how how will, how is that even going to work? It's I think SNA is doomed to be uh, one of those research and development projects with a, a massive massive explosion at the end. I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's going to be a one tricky move. But the Elon did say that they actually tried those flaps in a subscale model in a wind tunnel. I mean, that could give them some idea, but probably not enough. Yeah, because uh, what, what they also have to do as well, which has not been tested in that wind tunnel, they have to balance the center of gravity so if you imagine balancing a pole on the tip of your finger you have to get your finger in the dead center in order for the both ends to be balanced and not fall out of your hand so what they have to do with the rocket as the fuel depletes they have to move part of the fuel to the nose so that the rock center of gravity of the rocket stays level so it stays in a belly flop position or if they didn't transfer some of that fuel to the nose it'd get bottom heavy and it'd just end up coming in essentially like a falcon 9 like bottom first which is a they do not want because they're putting all the heat shielding on the bottom um so they haven't uh as well as all the control systems they're having to do a, a magic act of pumping the fuel upwards towards the nose to keep the center of gravity even while it's falling and as that depletes the weight of the engines will naturally help that the rocket tilt for landing as well as all the control systems it's instant once you start reading about it honestly it's just so many things have to have to have to happen in synchronization to make it land it's absolutely insane it just makes the falcon 9 look like a, a kid's toy honestly <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a sight to see when it flies and Elon did tweet that we will get a live stream and we will get to see every frame of the footage. So that's good. Yeah, Elon doesn't shy away from things going wrong. Um, he literally, as you're saying, how not to uh, land a, a Falcon 9 and stuff like that. You've seen that go around on YouTube. So no doubt in the future we'll get um, how not to fire up a, a Raptor engine or... We'll see all the tests that didn't go right with the Raptor engine in the early days, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think? Uh, will SN8 or Crew-1 fly earlier? I'd say Crew-1 um, by November, November the 14th, like you say. And I think we'll get the static fire done, obviously, some point this week. And then Crew-1. And then I imagine they, at some point, Elon's going to do some sort of announcement about the Starship update. He was wanting to just put a, a paper up online, but it looks like he might be doing the one or two interviews with the likes of everyday astronauts or, and some others possibly because of everything going on in the world um and then maybe after that possibly do the hop i don't know oh yeah well i hope it happens as soon as possible the funny thing about uh, demo 2 mission and starship development at that point i think sn4 blew up in a big fireball just before demo 2 went up yeah, yeah, and that that was only one engine as well. So, but the, that massive explosion was just due to the one of the tanks rupturing near the bottom and the fuel leaking out. So it's it's, it's all being tested, pressure tested now. So I doubt we'll see those kind of explosions um, from when it's ready to launch. 
or in this stack of static fire that's been or about to happen. Um, I think it's just more of a fact of it'll definitely launch. I think it'll just go all pear-shaped when it does the flop, I think. Yeah, I have to agree. Right, so today is the 20th anniversary of continuous human presence on International Space Station. So today, while we are recording, is the 2nd of November. So first occupants in the ISS came there November 2nd, 2000. So what ISS is? ISS is basically a laboratory in orbit and the only place to study long-term effects of microgravity and it has also been a proving ground for long-duration human flight giving us insight to a possible future in space. And ISS is said to be the most expensive thing humans have built. I don't know the number, do you? Was it like trillions? 150 billion US dollars it was. Quite expensive. Could be could be quite easily more than that right now. Yeah. <laughs> so the first ISS component was launched in 1998. It took a couple of years before humans were able to live there. And last major module was fitted in 2011. So that's almost 10 years ago. After that, we did get the Bigelow's inflatable module in 2016, and I think that's still in use on ISS. I believe so. The, um, the that that's still unit still up there. Um, the plan on doing similar similar project in the near future. Um, I believe there was a company called Bigelow Aerospace that's recently went defunct or gone bust that was doing a similar kind of thing. But uh, NASA themselves are looking at doing that to um, create a larger station of sorts. Because obviously you have limited space when you actually launch these modules for space stations. To have an inflatable style unit, it maximizes your amount of space, really. Yeah, yeah, that's true. ISS orbits around 400 kilometer high orbit and one orbit takes around 90 minutes. So it's about 16 orbits per day. Have you, Ryan, seen ISS flying through the sky? I have quite a few times, yeah. It's quite difficult to spot, but once you see it, you just it's insane how fast it's flying across the sky because you, you see it there whizzing past all the distant galaxies and stars and everything else. But I've seen it a few times. Yeah, me too. Uh, and you have to uh, know exactly when it's going to be visible. Otherwise, it's you're not going to see it. ISS has hosted uh, 241 individuals from 19 different countries and around 50 nations have helped to build the station. Current occupants uh, on the ISS are Expedition 6364 and there's two cosmonauts, Sergei Rusnikov and Sergei Kutsverskov and then there's the NASA astronaut Kate Rubins. Yeah, yeah, they just recently went up um, in a record time of three hours and three minutes on a Soyuz capsule. The record point-to-point uh, launch and docking. Incredible how fast they got there. Yeah, that's quite far away from the times that uh, SpaceX has so far demonstrated. I believe the previous record was around 12 hours, wasn't it? Something like that. I think Soyuz has actually already flown under six hours, but I'm not totally sure. But uh, this crew, uh, they are going to have an interesting stay because they are welcoming SpaceX's crew one this month and 
then the next month they are welcoming the new cargo dragon capsule from spacex and uh, early next year they are supposed to welcome boeing's orbital flight test capsule so interesting times for them if it actually gets there this time <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i think it would get there I mean, if Boeing screws up again, it's going to be bad for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the previous tests, um, for people that haven't read too much into it, um, the Boeing Starliner, once it failed last time, NASA found in excess of 60 actual problems with the software or hardware or whatever. I mean, to find one or two, fair enough, but to find 60 or more people, humans are actually going on, it's just it's mind-boggling, but in a way, from Boeing, understandable when you cast your mind to their 737 MAX planes that have been grounded for the exact same reason because of a software problem. Yeah, it's not good. And as I even said, it was a high visibility case. But hopefully they cleared everything out and they'll uh, get there. I mean, I really want them to succeed at the end of the day. It's frustrating as it all was and everything. And we need more than one option to get to the International Space Station at the end of the day. Yeah, it's better to have multiple rides there. So how long do you think ISS will fly? believe they said it could last for another 10 years and before it needs some proper serious remodeling but i believe there's some other companies out there looking to set up their own yeah you are right uh, the dates that they have given iss almost every year they are saying something different but i think about 10 years could be the how long it will live and axiom space is going to probably make their own private space station yeah this we've seen quite a few plans uh, from various companies and countries planning to set their own uh, space stations of sorts and we're going to have the the nasa gateway um which i believe is going to be uh internationally funded one but uh, we're still going to potentially have separate companies still going on to do their own space stations so we'll won't just have the International Space Station in the next 20 to 30 years. We'll have maybe half a dozen or more, some one or two around the moon, maybe, and then a few around the round Earth doing various scientific experiments. Yeah, so there's quite a few breakthroughs that people have made on ISS in terms of science. For example, they had to invent a new water purification system that's capable of recycling 93% of used water. Uh, then there's been a lot of studies into combat muscle atrophy and bone loss and then just understanding our bodies, how they work in microchi and a lot of advancement in medicine. For example, this year or last year, they actually were 3D printing a human tissue on ISS. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Jim Bernstein, uh, Bernstein has previously said in a few interviews that um, they've successfully 3D printed, uh, like you say, human tissue and a small amount of human tissue and possibly be able to do organs and stuff like that eventually in the microgravity of space. Because obviously when you try and 3D print something that's soft and jelly, if you like, as disgusting as it sounds, our bodies and everything on the face of the Earth where it's gravity, it's just not physically possible because it's easier print something that's floating in midair that doesn't need to spend and everything 
it's a lot lot easier to 3D print in space. And uh, Jim Bernstein said that um, the potential use for one of the space stations, whether it's the International Space Station or another, could be in the future to 3D print organs, box them up, bring them back down to Earth and save people's lives at the end of the day, giving them organs that have been 3D printed in space. It's kind of uh, out of this world, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, crazy to think about that. There's also the uh, the politics side of it as well. Uh, we won't get too into it, but um, upcoming election in a certain country between two certain people. I'm not going to name names for the sake of it or what side I'm on or whatever. But um, the, the International Space Station, um, the funding for the actual space station runs out in 2024, which is also the year of the moon landing eventually, if it uh, all goes to plan. But uh, on one side of the fence in the election, one of them's looking to continue funding the International Space Station for future developments and the other side is planning on ending it ending the funding and handing it over to private companies to develop and um, what do you think of that Amigo? well I'm a bit afraid of what will happen due to the politics not just ISS but the whole space program going to the moon I mean it's it's, it's promising that private companies could take it over could uh, it could continue and develop even more there's been loads of ideas of what to do the International Space Station once it comes to its end of use for NASA and other countries around the world there's been some theories that it could be turned turned into a space hotel of sorts some have theorized that it could just become a, a 3d print and uh science thing like we've previously just been talking about for 3d printing organs and stuff like that in the near future like uh, essentially a, a floating hospital in space printing uh, vital tissue I do think that that's going to be the future at some point, maybe even this decade. I hope so. I think it was uh, Blue Origin who wanted to create their own space station alongside some other companies. And the way they were planning on doing it, um, one theory was to deploy modules to attach to the end of the International Space Station and build it up from there. And once it was big enough, it detached from the International Space Station and the rest of the uh, equipment could be attached at a later date. So could use the International Space Station as a essentially like a stepping stone to build an, another space station because you obviously need astronauts and a team to assemble some of the other critical parts while it's up there. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, that's Axiom Space that's, that's trying to do that. Then I hope Bigelow will still find the way out of their bankruptcy and actually make those inflatable modules and space stations. Yeah, because those infl- I think that inflatable idea is absolutely incredible. I mean, it's still a bit... Um bit risky because from what we've seen happen to the base station recently with some minor holes here and there trying to find the leak with a leaf floating in the air and stuff like that bit of a strange one but there you go um if it's a inflatable module it just um it only takes one little small asteroid to puncture a hole in it and it just makes you wonder how how strong that material has to be to protect you from the dangers of the vacuum of space yeah definitely i i think it's some kind of kevlar or something similar Thanks for listening this week, guys. Uh, I've been Ryan from the Space Update. And I've been Mikko. Have a nice day.